don't. No, you don't. Is there anyone else that doesn't have the two? You should have two papers, packets for me. All right, everybody, let's go ahead and get started tonight. Thank you all so much for coming and being a part. Um, this thing? Anyway. Uh, so you should have two packets. One of them we'll get to. The one that's the, the newspaper article, we'll get to that a little bit later on as we go on. Um, but the other is notes. Again, you know, they're not checked for grammatical. I typed them a while back, and so they're, I did not intend for anybody to see them. They're not uh, intended to be grammatically spell-checked or anything like that. So they're just something you can look at to follow along. Um, maybe it'll be a helpful guide. You can write them, keep them, burn them, do whatever feels right to you, okay? All right. Well, um, I hope you all have had a great week. Why don't we just go to the Lord in prayer, give him our time tonight, and, uh, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you wanted to talk to us, that you wanted to show us yourself. We are thankful, uh, Lord, that you have given it to us as a fountain that, Lord, we can go to and drink from again and again and again. Uh, Lord, I pray that tonight you would help us to have greater confidence, uh, greater faith in the sufficiency and the authority of your word, and, uh, and that, Lord, you would use that to help us be more faithful to it, obey it more, and to teach it better. Father, let all of us leave here tonight uh, more like Jesus than when we came. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can hear I'm a little bit louder than normal. We got this weird speaker thing going. Um, John and company did not think that I was loud enough. And so they installed speakers into this room in the ceiling so that you all would be able to hear me even better. Um, even though I taught Sunday school in here on Sunday and the class above me just listened to me because I was that loud. But not everybody that teaches in here is as loud as I am. Um, but that's why it's a little bit different than normal. So... If you'll remember back, I know we missed last week because of the great tornadoes that were sweeping across uh, Calhoun County that did not end up coming at hardly at all. Um, but what we've been talking about is we've been talking about how we can become better students of the Bible. That we don't just want to be readers of the Bible, though reading the Bible is good. We don't just want to think about the Bible, though thinking about the Bible is good. We don't just want to hear the Bible preached, though hearing the Bible preached is good. That we want to learn how it is that we ourselves can be students of the Bible, study the Bible. And so the last couple of weeks that we've spent to, to, in our time together, we've talked about how we came to have the Bible and how the copy of God's Word that we hold in our hands now got to be that way. We looked at, how, at the Old Testament and how the Old Testament came to be and how the books that we have in our Old Testament uh, came to be a part of the canons that we now have. And then uh, the last time that we were together, we looked at the New Testament and how the New Testament came to be and how the New Testament um, came to be the books that we have and the canons that we have in our books tonight. And so tonight, what I want to do is kind of now start talking more in the big picture. And I want to ask the question tonight is how can we know that we can trust our Bible? How can we know that we can trust our Bible? In, or in other words, does the Bible contain errors? Does the Bible contain mistakes? Does the Bible contained information that was relevant at one point but is now irrelevant in our day. In the late 1970s, there was a war uh, that was being fought uh, across the Southern Baptist Convention. The 70s on into the 80s, it in fact it had been trending for some time over the generations kind of building up to that. 
And the war that was being fought was over the inerrancy of the Bible. Whether or not the Bible contained errors, whether or not the Bible was to be taken as being the authoritative word of God, sufficient in wisdom and truthful in all of its claims, whether it is the supernatural or it is a detail in the book of Leviticus. If all of those things could be taken as being truthful, factual, it was at stake whether or not uh, the Bible should be adopted or adjusted to the modern culture, having been written for a past culture. And so many of the things that they were, that was being uh, taught and explained and accepted in that day, especially from our seminaries, especially from my seminary, which I dearly love, um, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, was kind of like right, like the epicenter of all of this. And some of the things that they were teaching were that in the, in the day that the Bible was written, that it was culturally adjusted by its authors to fit its readers, which made it now largely culturally irrelevant, and the need was there for the Bible to be re, re-explained or reapplied, reinterpreted in through the lens of today's culture. And so they would say that the miracles that we read in our Bible were just unexplained phenomenons that the people of that day were too misinformed to understand. They would say things like homosexuality was not culturally acceptable in that day and so the biblical authors couldn't have written about it in a positive light or the book would have been received negatively. So they wrote about it in a certain way to a certain culture so that the faith principles in the book would then be accepted. They would say things like the feminist revolution had not yet ha- had not yet happened and so the they were not as enlightened on the moves of of feminism and on um, females in the pastorate and on the roles of men and women in the family and in the home and in uh, in the in the scriptures and so they were undermining all of that and needing all of that to be explained away they would then say that in that day, they needed to think that God was the only way, that Jesus was the only way to be saved, but that now we are much better informed about these things, and we understand that all of these things are moving us toward the higher power that is up there, and as long as we are there, then we are good. That the God language of the Bible was simply a mechanism, a language for that culture and that day in a way that they understood it. And so in their mind, what we had to do is we had to redeem the Bible. We had to redeem the Bible. We had to take the Bible and make it more palatable for a modern culture. That how can we expect, this is the the thought, how can we expect to reach enlightened people, educated people, articulate people with a book that says there was a man that was born of a virgin that was... Entirely man, entirely God, that died on a cross because God said he had to, and then raised from the dead. How are we supposed to reach enlightened, intelligent, educated people with a story that says that? How are we supposed to go to enlightened people with college degrees and tell them that God did in fact split the Red Sea or send a pillar of fire from heaven? How are we supposed to go to them and say that there was a man that was swallowed by a fish that re- regurgitated by the fish alive and preached the gospel? Like, like, How are we supposed to go to people in an enlightened culture and take those stories to them 
and expect from them anything other than laughter. And so in their mind, what their hope was, what their thought was, is that we need to redeem the Bible so that it will now be acceptable to an enlightened people. That we need to redeem the, the truths of the Bible and try to take out some of the good principles of the Bible and then at the same time dismiss a lot of the phenomenon of the Bible and a lot of the claims of the Bible that were used in their minds for a, a, a culture that is now far gone. That, that the, the thinking was now archaic in their minds and completely irrelevant to a modern or a postmodern culture. The battle was not new, in fact. It had existed for some time. As a matter of fact, a hundred years, exactly a hundred years prior to that, at Southern Seminary, a similar uh, controversy had broken out with a man named Crawford Toy, who was of a brilliant intellect. They say that when he was uh, in a prison in, uh, in Germany, that he was imprisoned as a soldier in Germany, and that the only thing that he asked for was a Greek New Testament, and that he memorized entire books of the Greek New Testament because he was such a, of a top-shelf mind. He was a man known to be a pious man, a godly man, that did lots of, of good things. He was the love interest of Lottie Moon. If you've ever heard of Lottie Moon, who, we, who our Christmas offering is taken, af, taken name after, uh, the great Baptist missionary that gave up her life, starved herself to death for the people of China. That, but what Crawford Toy began to be, take interest in was uh, German higher criticism, something that had originated a hundred years prior to him, and as he came in, he lessened and lessened and lessened his understanding of the Bible until ultimately he was fired as one of the most distinguished members of one of the most distinguished seminaries, Southern Seminary, uh, at the turn of the century. The president, James uh, Pettigrew Boyce, is, it is said that he walks toy, is a, a deep friend to the, to the train station, and he reaches out and grabs him by the right hand, and he, said, he says, Toy, I would give up this arm if you would return to who you were ten years ago. But he ends up going, being one of the founding members of the Harvard Divinity School, and ultimately dies a lonely Unitarian with no true belief in Jesus at all. So, the things that we see today, the things that we see in, saw in the 80s, the things that we saw um, in the 70s, the, sa the same things that we're hearing about today are not new. They are, in fact, very, very, very old. If you'll look at the article that I have, what we see is that in, uh, in the mainline churches, we, and understand what I'm talking about when I'm talking about mainline churches. I'm talking about the Episcopal Church. I'm talking about the Lutheran Church. I'm talking about the United Methodist Church. I'm talking about the Episcopal Church, right? These mainline denominations, they are becoming increasingly and increasingly influenced by this enlightened thought, and their thinking is exactly the same. This article was actually printed uh, in, on January the 4th of 2017. This is very, very current research. And what they found, and y'all, I can't stress to you the importance of this enough. And I printed this article because I want you to understand all that is at stake for what we're talking about. So there was a man, you can read there. Um, it says that these mainline denominations, these mainline congregations are currently shrinking by about 1 million members annually. Think about that. They're losing a million members a year, okay? So they're, they're dying, they're collapsing, they're, they're shrinking. 
their research is based on, you'll see this in the second paragraph, uh, a guy named John Shelby Spong of U.S. Bishop. Now, of course, what he's writing is not new, okay? His premise is, is kind of, was new at the time, but the basis of what he's getting it from is not new. But he published a book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. And he, being a theological liberal, proposed that if they did not change their interpretation of the Bible from being a literal, uh, a literal uh, conservative view of the Bible, that they would, in fact, die as times changed, as society itself became more liberal, and as society itself grew with, understand, with, with, grew ed, with education and as the modern world evolved. And so what you see is you look at the, the Presbyterian Church USA. Now, there is the conservative Presbyterian Church, too, that I believe are faithful brothers. In the, that's called the PCA, okay? So this is all confu- that's confusing, okay? So I'm talking the PCUSA, which is the, the liberal wing of the Presbyterian Church. Then you have the United Methodist Church, which we know over the course of the summer was voting and whether or not they were going to accept homosexuality in members and into the clergy and if they were going to perform homosexual weddings, which now they do. The Episcopal Church, which has homosexual clergy and uh, any other variety of things, right? So, so all of these mainline denominations are influenced by this thought. Now, I want to I call a pause there, and that does not mean that every single person in these mainline denominations is that way, okay? Especially like, like in our area, there is, a, there is a, a strong influence of United Methodist uh, brothers and sisters, as an example, right? I preach, there's a United Methodist Church that I preach in about, just probably about once a year in Ashland, and I was talking with the pastor there, and he said, Cody, we don't know what we're going to do. If we leave the denomination, we lose our property. We lose our building. But we don't agree with anything that they're saying or anything that they do. And we believe what the Bible says. We believe what's being held true. And so his denomina- their denomination is abandoning them, is leaving them. It's the same thing with so many of the Presbyterian brothers that, that hold fast to the Bible. Now they're finding that they, they own a piece of property. They're, they're ministering on a piece of property that their members over hundreds of years sometimes have paid for. That they, in fact, don't own. The denomination owns. And the denomination abandons the Bible. And they want to go with the Bible. But to go with the Bible, they have to pay the denomination tens of millions of dollars for the property which they can't afford. Okay, so I, I want to be charitable. I want I want I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm I'm speaking in broad terms, in, in sweeping terms. So they've bought into this thought that we must evolve or die. And for the last twenty years, especially, that has been accelerated. But you know what we're finding? The more that they evolve the gospel, the more that they they try to retrofit the Bible to the culture the faster they die. The faster they die. In fact, the, all of the studies that say religion is dying, God is dying in America, they're talking about this because the truth of the matter is, is the conservative denominations are on the rise. They're growing. They're getting bigger. Conservative churches are growing. That's what this article is, is, is pointing to. They're, they are increasing. They're, they're healthier. It was fascinating that the, so the author of the article who's I don't even know that he's a Christian he's just writing it based on research he says for example he said we 93% of clergy members and 83% of worshipers from growing churches agreed with the statement Jesus rose from the dead with a real flesh and body uh, flesh and blood body leaving behind a tomb 
This compared with 67% of worshipers and 56% of clergy. This is more than half of preachers, okay? You understand what we're talking about? Who who denied it, and they were in declining churches. All growing church clergy members and 90% of their worshipers agreed that God performs miracles in answer to prayers compared with 80% of worshipers and a mere 44% of clergy members from declining churches. He closes by saying this. If it's any consolation when it comes to growth in mainline churches, Spong and other liberals are right to claim that Christianity must change or die. They just get the direction of the change wrong. Now I ask you, why is that? Why is it that as churches change, as as people try to change the understanding of the Bible and change the interpretation of the Bible and try to modernize the Bible and make the Bible more relevant and make it fit more within culture, why is it that those churches die? Because they have nothing left to believe in. They have nothing left to believe in. If you alter the message of the gospel, do you undermine the very authority of that message? If you say, well, we're not sure that Jesus was really born of a virgin, then we can't really be sure that Jesus was raised from the dead, and then we can't really be sure that Jesus has any power to save at all. If we can't be certain that Jesus was truthful when he told us that Jonah was swallowed by a fish, then how can we be certain that Jesus is truthful when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That by trying to retrofit the gospel to the culture, they have undermined any authority that they had to speak into people's lives and to help them. If I'm going to go somewhere with it, for advice from the culture, I'll just go to the culture. I don't need the church to help me with that. There's enough books, books a million to help me with that. There's enough talk shows on television to help me with that. There's enough friends at work to help me with that. What I need is when all of that fails and all of that leaves me searching and miserable, I need somebody that has a different message. I need somebody that has a greater hope. I need somebody with some authority to speak life into mine, right? And so what churches are finding is that as they cave into the culture, as they back away from the authority of the Bible, they don't have a message left to share. They don't have a hope left to give. And who's going to go to a church like that? I bet every single one of you, whether you were five or you were 50, when you were saved, at that moment you were desperate. You were desperate that God could overcome your sin. You were desperate that you could be delivered, even you. When you're desperate, you don't need more enlightenment. You need the Holy Spirit. You need a new heart. You need the slate wiped clean. You need a new nature. You need the power and the hope of the resurrection. When you sit at the, at the bedside of your husband watching him rot away from cancer, you don't need more self-help. You need the gospel. You need to know that there is a God on the other side waiting to embrace his children. Right? You see, if 
we lose the Bible, we lose the faith. If we lose the authority of the Bible, we lose the authority of the gospel. So I want I want to tell you that I am committed and I have resolved before God that I will die for this book. And that's that's a sobering thought, but I have. I, I've prayed that if it ever comes down to whether I have to deny this or live, that the Lord would give me the strength in that moment to lay down and die. This is life and death. Generations of Christians have seen it the same way. They have been burned at the stake. They have been pelted with rocks, had their heads lopped off their shoulders because they refused to deny that this was the God-breathed, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God. So, tonight when I talk about inerrancy, what I mean by that, the simple definition, you'll see this in your notes, is that Scripture in its original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. It's it's pretty straightforward, right? In other words, I'm telling you that the Bible tells the truth about everything. That the Bible is honest about everything. That the Bible is reliable because I... At the very essence of what we're talking about, at the very essence of the inerrancy of the Bible, is whether or not we can trust God. Because if God is not big enough and mighty enough and good enough to give us a book that is without flaw, if God is not big enough and mighty enough and strong enough to give us a book that we can trust in and love and delight in, as the psalmist says in Psalm 1, then how can he be a God big enough to overcome my wickedness? How can he be a God big enough to speak the universe into existence? So so at stake here is not just whether or not this is some important book or unimportant book or somewhere in between kind of book. At stake when we talk about this is whether or not we can trust God. Whether or not God is reliable. So let's start tonight by talking about some of the modern challenges to inerrancy. Let's talk about some of the things that these enlightened folk, these liberal theologians kind of use to push back on inerrantists like me to, 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 to reveal my ignorance to you all. All right. So the first challenge to inerrancy that I want us to see is that they would say that the Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. That the Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. So, so here, here, here's their premise. That the Bible is not a math book, and the Bible is not a history book, and the Bible is not a science book. And since the Bible is neither a history book or a math book or a science book, then you can't, it, then it doesn't really matter what it says about history, math, or science. It only is a book about faith and how to practice that faith. So the only things that we should worry ourselves about whether or not the Bible is true or not is whether or not that is uh, an issue of faith and practice. The Bible can only be trusted in the issues of faith and practice. So we shouldn't really worry about um, what it says about creation. We shouldn't really worry about what it says about um, the, the, the beginning of man. Uh, whether that's evolution or creationism, like we shouldn't really worry ourselves with that. We shouldn't really worry ourselves with, with how it kind of reveals history. Like those things, we don't have to worry. Those things are probably not true. Uh, we shouldn't worry ourselves with, with the supernatural in the Bible, that those things are probably allegorized 
uh, events that that are kind of exaggerated. So when the people of Israel talk about the parting of Red Sea, that's, that's either some kind of explainable phenomenon or it was just the way they kind of told the story to pass it down through the years kind of thing. So, but because the Bible's not a, a history book and the Bible's not a science book, that's not a problem. We don't worry about that. We just worry about that it's issues pertaining to faith and practice. Now, here's something I'm just going to give you kind of like an inside nugget, Okay. Because all of you are theologians. I believe every person is a theologian. You are a growing theologian. And so you need to be aware of some of the the theological nuances that are out there. This is where it can get tricky. People that hold this view will often tell you that they believe the Bible to be infallible. Now, they would not use the word inerrant. It's a strange thing because truthfully, infallible should mean the same thing as inerrant. Like, they should mean the same thing. But in theological circles, for whatever reason, they have come to mean different things. Now, like, if, you, if, you're, if you're listening to a preacher and you know he's kind of not really connected into that community, he says, in fact, that's probably what he means, okay? Like, let's be charitable toward people. If you're talking to your Christian friend at work and they say, I believe that the Bible is infallible, they probably mean inerrant. But if you're talking to somebody that is kind of connected into the seminarian culture, and you're talking to somebody that's kind of in the broader theological community, and they say that they, are, they, are, uh, they believe the Bible is infallible, for me that's a red light. That, that, that's a red flag. Because they're trying to use a language that sounds comfortable to most Christians. By the way, you know that's why the SBC didn't end up liberal? Did you know that? Because the people in the churches didn't believe that stuff. The people in the churches believe in the word of God. It was the academics up high. And when the people in the churches found out that's what the academics believe, they threw them out. Right? So when you get in that, it, 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 but what they would say is, that I believe the word's infallible. Well, to the person in the pew, that sounds good. And that's how these preachers get into the churches, right? I believe the word of God is infallible. But, but in fact, they would not believe that it's an error. They believe it's, it's without fault when it comes to faith and practice, not when it comes to science and history. So what's the, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with the thought that it's, it's, in, it's inerrant or, on, or infallible only in faith and practice? The problem is that the Bible presents itself as being totally inerrant. So, so the Bible itself, which is a, a, an issue of faith and practice, says that within its pages, it is, is without fault. It is without flaw, that it contains God's word. And so if the Bible is being dishonest about that, then you can't trust any of it, right? Listen to what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. We've read this before. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. All scripture. All scripture contains the breath of God. All of it. The science part, the history part, the Old Testament part, the New Testament part, the part about, about Abraham taking his son Isaac to sacrifice him, the part about the Red Sea, the part about the virgin birth, like all of it, all of it, it contains the breath of God. Acts 24, 14, it says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything, everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. That the New Testament itself is saying we believe in the Bible. That the Bible is, does contain the word of God. The Bible does contain the truth about God. The New Testament authors further, the New Testament authors trusted the smallest historical details of the Old Testament. Now remember what I, what I told you, one of their main points is, right? 
One of their main points is, is that it doesn't really matter about the little things, right? It doesn't really matter about the miraculous stories that we can, we can do without those things and we can continue the storyline of the gospel. We can continue the storyline of the Bible without worrying about those things. But what's the problem with that? That the Bible says that those things, the New Testament authors, in fact, Jesus himself says that those things are true. Think about what he says in Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, does this sound anything in your mind at all that Jesus is saying? So there was a story that was once told about this man that spent three days and three nights in the there's an allegory out there that's kind of that we can extrapolate principles from. No, Jesus just speaks about it like it's fact, doesn't he? He just speaks about it as though it's the truth. One of the stories that some of you have heard me tell before is um, at a church that I served at. When I was very naive early, my, the, the first church I went full time in, um, I was youth pastor, and Megan and I are sitting. On in the front row, I was a youth pastor, and we're sitting, all the teenagers are with us, and our pastor is up there who um, I believe has actually since repented of this, but um, at the time was, very, was influenced by, by more liberal thought, and I remember him saying, let's just suppose that Jonah was really swallowed by a fish. Just suppose that, jo-, and he said it about 15 times. And Megan and I were like, I mean, like we're, we're 21, we haven't been married a week, and what are we going to do? Our pastor's up there saying something that we believe to be fundamentally untrue. And I remember us getting in the car and saying, well, just suppose Jesus was raised from the dead. Just suppose, right? We even had somebody uh, visit our church recently. And, and look, they're, they're learning. They're growing in the faith. They don't mean anything by it. But they were talking to John. And they were like, so you and Cody, like, y'all actually believe Jonah was swallowed by a fish? Y'all, like, y'all like, really believe that? And what's our answer to that? Yes. Why? It's in the Bible. And Jesus said it, right? Like, as if it, being in the Bible wasn't enough, Jesus believed it. And if Jesus, if Jesus is lying to us, then there is no moral authority in the book. If Jesus is lying to us about Jonah, then there is no faith and practice to be had. Because Jesus is a fraud. You see, it matters. It matters. And so, to discredit Jonah is to discredit Jesus. To discredit the miraculous in the Old Testament is to rob the integrity from the New Testament. They would say that, the, the, that this view, or I would say this view mistakes the major purpose of Scripture for the total purpose of Scripture. That a summary cannot properly be used to deny one thing that it summarizes. Is the Bible primarily a history book? No. The Bible is not primarily a history book. Is the Bible primarily a science book? No. It is not primarily a science book. Is the Bible primarily a book about the Christian faith? Yes. But does that mean that it is untrue what it says about science? No. Does that mean that it is untrue about what it says about history? No. That you can have a book whose main trajectory is the story of the gospel and the outline of redemption and it still say true things about the creation of the world and the function of the world and the order of society and nature and it be true because guess what? It's the same God that built both. It's the same God that did both. The same God that redeems is the same God who creates. The same God that made 
Adam and Eve are the same, is the same God that sent Jesus Christ, the word that became flesh, to bear our sin, die on the cross, and be raised in resurrection glory that you and I might have hope in him. It's the same God. The second point that they would make, so the first is that the Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. The second challenge would be that the term inerrancy is a poor term. So this gets back a little bit to what we were talking about, infallible, right? They want a different term. They don't want us to say that, um, that, it's, that, it's a, uh, that it's an inerrant. So what they would say is that the term inerrancy is too precise and too scientific, and that in fact, inerrancy is not found anywhere in the Bible. That the word inerrancy is not used in the Bible. But what I want to say is that this is without common sense or reason at all. That this, this objection that they have toward us is without any sense of, of logic or common sense whatsoever that we all know just by the basis of how we talk to each other. By just what we know about basic human communication and basic human interaction, we know that the term inerrancy, being a, a poor term, is a foolish objection to make to the points that are being had. First of all, all right, so here's what they would say. They would go to Psalm 113, and they would say that Psalm 113 says that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, right? That, it, that the sun is rising. But in fact, we know that the sun does not rise, that the earth is spinning on its axis around the sun. And so it may appear as though it is rising, but that the sun is not rising. And so we see that, and clearly there is a factual error in the Bible. Now, when you say that the sun is rising in the east, are you making a scientific statement? No. You're making an observation from the perspective of humanity, right? You're making a common sense observation from the perspective of humanity. And you and I can all say that the sun is rising in the east and lowering in the west. And not a single person is going to point to you and say, liar, the earth is spinning on an axis, you fool. Right? Because that's not an issue of honesty. That's an issue of purpose and perspective for that sentence, right? That, 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 that perhaps in poetry it sounds a bit better and what are the Psalms? Poetry? Perhaps in poetry it sounds a bit better to talk about the rising of the sun than the spinning on an axis and revolutions around in the orbit around the sun. Like maybe, maybe, right? But it, at stake here is not perspective. It's, at stake here is truthfulness. And it does not make it, un, make, make it untruthful to say that the sun is rising from the east. There are innumerable other examples that we could give of this. To the claim that they say that it is not found anywhere in our Bible, well, most of our theological terms that we use to help us understand and categorize things in the Bible are not found in the Bible. Like the word Trinity that we use and have upheld uh, for, uh, for millennia now in the Christian church to describe the Godhead as being Father, Son, and Spirit, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, but it describes something that is found in the Bible. 
The word incarnation that we use to describe how, how God came and he lived among people, dwelt among people, and walked on the earth to describe that God incarnate in flesh. Walk, that's not found, like incarnation is not found on the Bible, but we have used that word to describe what the Bible says. That's what the word inerrancy does. The word inerrancy describes to us what the Bible says, the claims that the Bible makes of itself. And so, in my opinion, that is a completely erroneous argument. Third, they would say we have no inerrant manuscripts, therefore talk about an inerrant Bible is misleading. Now, inerrantists, just like me, would tell you what I've told if you were here with me a few weeks ago when we were talking about textual variants a little bit, right? That when we were talking, remember we were talking about the way we got our New Testament. How did we say that the New Testament got from Paul to the ends of the earth? You guys remember how did we multiply those, those versions of the, of the epistles or other books in the New Testament? Hand copies. That's right, hand copies. And what happens when you hand copy over and over and over and over and over? You make mistakes occasionally, right? You, you skip a word, you skip a line, you miss a punctuation, you, you misspell something, something gets smudged on the paper, and so it's read like this over here when you meant for it to be read like that. And so over and over and over, as these things were transcribed, there were occasionally words that were skipped, lines that were missed, but we have so many of them that we're able to lay them all side by side and see where those, those variants are. So much so that to say that 99% of what we have, we can say with 100% confidence, is in fact what was in those original manuscripts. Because they are so numerous in number, because they are so old, and they're so, uh, and being so old, we know them to be accurate. And so yes, an inerrantist will tell you that the ones that are 100% are in inerrant are those original autographs, those original things that were written by Paul himself. But it is not misleading to say that our Bible is inerrant because our Bible contains over 99% of what was in those original autographs. And those variants that you find in your Bible in that 1%, most of them are minuscule of should it be he or should it be they? Should it be, should it be us or should it be we? Like it's, it's things that are, that are of, the, of the smallest significance. And even on areas that are bigger, remember I gave you the example of John chapter 8. Uh, another example, if you want to turn and look and see one, is in uh, Mark chapter 16. In issues that where in the, uh, a newer manuscript, a story appears in an older manuscript, perhaps we don't see it. And so maybe we had it in the KJV, you remember, but we, may, we, we have more questions about it in the ESV because of that. Even in stories like that, it has no theological significance. It doesn't change anything but if you'll notice in your bible uh if, if you have an esv if you have basically probably any modern translation it, there's there's brackets around the text you guys see that see the bracket beginning in verse 9 going through verse 20 there's brackets uh, mine even has a head in it that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16 9 through 20 and there's a a long extended footnote explaining to you why now, reading that is not going to hurt you. It's probably a truthful thing that happened. It's probably real. It's probably uh, an, an, an accurate account. But they're wanting us to know that that is a variant, that, that there is suspicion as to whether or not that was in the original uh, manuscript. And so we even have those and know what those are in our Bibles, and we can read those and see those are not calling into question what the nature of saving faith is. Those are not calling into question what the, the, the magnitude of the Trinity. 
Those are not calling in, into question those who will be saved and those, will be who, those who will be condemned. They're good, they're helpful, but they don't, they don't in any way contradict any major doctrine, right? So we can have a lot of confidence in our Bibles. And it is 100% honest for us to, to say and to claim and to call this an, the inerrant word of God. Next, they would say the biblical writers accommodated their writings for their audience and culture. Okay, this is the common thought of today. This is not a new thought. I want you to understand, like, Solomon was right in Ecclesiastes when he said there is nothing new under the sun. All of the heresies that we hear today, that might be repackaged a little bit. Uh, we're a little better at marketing now than we used to be. Our, our graphic design is a little bit sharper. But all of, the, all of the heresies are the same. It's the same stuff that's been coming for a long time. And so what they would say is they would say that sometimes a biblical author incidentally would affirm something that was untrue so that he wouldn't lose his audience. So that his audience would still be willing to listen to him. So when we go to, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And it talks about how a woman shouldn't be an authority over a man in the church. They would say, well, he had to write it that way or the culture of that day would have rejected him. When it talks about homosexuality in Romans chapter 1 being an abomination and, and something that gives evidence to a mind that is reprobate. They would say, well, he had to write that in that culture or it would have been culturally rejected. So again, now we can take those things and we can get rid of those things that they were bound by their ignorant, unenlightened culture and we can just keep the good stuff that fits us today. And so I want you to think about the implications of that. First of all, it would just totally reject that God had any hand in the process, wouldn't it? That God is not big enough to overcome cultural differences through his word. But the bigger issue for me here is if that is true, that, that God has to, to change what is true so that we will accept it, then we are in the midst of a massive ethical dilemma. First of all, how do we know that God is not lying about to, to us about everything? How do we know God is being truthful? If, if he can lie about something small, we know that he can lie about something big. Isn't that what we teach our children? And the very even, even unbelievers teach their children that, right? Not only that, but Ephesians 5.1 says that we are to be imitators of God. So to what extent do we have the right to imitate God's dishonesty? To what extent do we get to be able to, to say something to our children or to our church or to our community that we know is untrue simply so they will accept it? I don't know about you guys. I don't want to follow a God like that. I don't want to imitate a God that can't be truthful with me. I don't want to, be, I don't want to, I don't want to imitate a God that will soften the truth. Because I know as a dad... That that's not what love is. That it's not loving for me to try to repackage the truth to something more palatable for my daughter while she is deceived. No, it is loving, even in things that are hard, to sit her down and say, Honey, this is just life. This is just what's real. This is what you can take to the bank. There's a massive ethical dilemma. They would say, finally, there are clear errors in the Bible. 
so it can't be inerrant. And to the person that says that, I ask them to show me where they are. Because you know what? Every person that I've ever asked to show me where the errors of the Bible are, they've never been able to show me one. They don't. They, they just say those things, and they have no ammunition to back it up. And even when they do point to a verse, maybe they would go, you remember a few weeks ago, we, we talked out of, of James chapter 2, right? And where it said that, that we are justified, that Abraham was justified by works, right? And how that seems to contradict and be an error when we lay it beside Ephesians chapter 2. And what they would do is they would strip it from its context and then offer it over to us and say, look, this is clear contradiction. And so when people do that, if you can sit them down, which is, again, why you need to become a student of the Bible, right? It's why we need classes like this to grow as a student of the Bible so that you can sit down and say, well, let's look at it. Let's lay Ephesians 2 and James 2 beside each other, and let's put it in the context of what's happening in the broader book, and let's put it in the context of what, of what that author is trying to say to that audience, and let's see that, if that's what's going on here, right? And so you can dissolve that one quite quickly. Quickly, uh, three responses that we can give to critics, three logical responses. And look, I, I'm a little bit cautious to use logic. I'm a, I'm a logical thinker. Like That's how my brain works. But I think that, that we can fall into error believing that we always have to have a ro- rational, logical answer to everything. I, I, I want to warn us because first and foremost, brothers and sisters, we are people of faith. We are people of faith. We believe in God, not simply because it is logical, but because we trust God, right? And we don't have to domesticate the Bible to say something other than that. I do believe trusting in the Lord is logical. I do believe that. But we don't have to try to rationalize everything because at the end of the day, we don't want a God so small that we can rationalize him, right? At the end of the day, we are a people of faith. But, there, but here are the three logical responses to critics, some of which I have covered already, and I won't spend a ton of time here. First, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday people. It can say the rising of the sun. It can talk about rain falling, right? But this has nothing to do with gravity. This has to do with perspective. This has to do with the view from which it is speaking. It can, you can round numbers. Like This is another one they would say, well, when we read the Bible, it always says 144,000. 3,000 were saved. How is it that it's never, ever 3,047? How is it that this is never 142, 103, right? Like, well, now y'all, how do y'all explain big crowds? About 300. And that's not being, that's not a lie, is it? That's not being dishonest. That's being truthful. It's about truthfulness, not precision on those things. That they rounded in in censuses in those days. And, And remember, There's no electronic check-in going down at the Sea of Galilee, okay? You're not doing fingerprint scan. They're not even the turnstile things they got at Six Flags, all right? They ain't got that over in Capernaum, okay? It was a a, a good, sound estimate of, of what was going in. And so the Bible can be inerrant and speak in everyday language, in everyday speech. Inerrancy has to do with truthfulness, not the degree of precision with which events are reported. Secondly, the Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. All right, so, so you have to understand that we live now in the world of the press, the free press, right? 
And so, you know, you got your tape recorders, and you're getting it all down, and then you go down, and if you're going to quote somebody, you put it in quotation marks, and then you write it exactly, like word for word, what they said. And then if you paraphrase it, we have a different way for that, right? If you, you kind of just give it your best summary, we have a, a different way grammatically that we include that. But that wasn't the culture in Jesus' day. That's not how you did it then. Like, they were much less concerned about the precision of a quote, and much more concerned about the truthfulness of the sentence, the truthfulness of the moment, okay? So what they, what, if, if you read in, okay, like for instance, right now, we're reading, we, like last week, I preached from Matthew chapter 15, um, verses 15 through 20, that exact same story, 1 through 20 really, that exact same story is at the very beginning of uh, Mark chapter 7. But if you lay Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15 side by side, there's different words used. There's different things included in one that are not included in another. And so what, what a, uh, a skeptical scholar would come and say is, say, look, the Bible is clearly not in sync here, right? Like, like Mark's talking about stuff that Matthew's not talking about. Matthew's talking about stuff that Mark's not talking about. But the truth is, is both of them are writing to different audiences. Both of them have, there, there is a pur- purpose or an occasion but we, we consider like the epistles of the New Testament to be occasional, right? That they're written for a specific occasion to a specific people. And those things affect the way, the presentation of the book. It does not mean that they are inaccurate. It does not mean that they are, they, are, they are lying. It means that they are summarizing it in a different way to communicate best with their particular audience in that book. That is hermeneutics, something we're going to get even much deeper in um, in a few months. Thirdly, it is consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical construction. Okay, so if you and I were Greek scholars, and we're not, we would go in and we would turn open our Greek New Testament, and we would read the book of First Peter, and we would see that the theolo- that the grammar there is a bit of a mess, and then we would open up our Bibles to the book of Galatians. And we would see that the grammar is pristine. Now, why is that? What did you say? Yes, right? It's the difference in the men that wrote them. This is how good God is, right? That God has always used different kinds of people with different kinds of experience and different levels of education to the glory of his name. That he is superintending all of it with the Holy Spirit so that it is truthful, it is right, it contains his breath, his accurate, inerrant word. But at the same time maintains the integrity of their own voice and their own grammar. So much so that even we see it today that like God uses a man, there's a man named Tim Keller that just announced that he's stepping down from his pastor. He pastors a church called Redeemer Church in New York City. And Tim Keller is like genius, okay? Like, they just they brought him in at Google recently just to give the case for God to all of Google's employees. They're not, they're not believers, you, you realize. They're coming, they just want to hear the other side. You know, they're the open-mindedness, right? And so he's the guy that if you're Google, you even have respect. Like, that guy's just top shelf. Like, he... And he, he, is, he is known to be famous for, for being able to engage skeptics on the faith. He's just like, like next level. All right, so God uses Tim Keller to his glory. And then God uses Cody Hell from Red Road 55 in Rabbit Town, right? 
Like, like he uses this guy from over here. And I'm going to bet that if you took my grammar and Tim Keller's grammar and you put them side by side, Tim's is a little bit sharper. You know what I'm saying? Tim's is a little bit sharper. I'm going to bet that if you read through my sermons and then put them beside Tim's sermons, I'm going to bet Tim's are a little bit stronger. You know what I mean? But the Lord is so good. And the Lord is so gracious. And the Lord is so supreme in power and might and grace that he uses both. And it's no less true in the writers that he chose to write his book. Paul was trained in academia. Peter walked in off a fishing boat. And God used them both. In fact, Peter had higher status as an apostle, the leader of the apostles, the one that Jesus looked to and said, on this rock, I will build my church. So that doesn't undermine inerrancy in my mind. In my mind, it highlights the grace and might of the Lord. So, tonight, I want to leave you with this thought. Are you willing to die for the Bible? Are you willing to die for the Bible? I have my whole Christian life, I have heard people try to describe and try to explain and try to understand what it is that brings revival. What it is that, that will allow the church to experience true revival. And I have heard every explanation from different kinds of preaching to more people um, going through prayer circles to different kinds of things. But I heard a theologian say this, and I believe it to be the truth. He said that when you look at the Reformation, which is perhaps the greatest revival that we have ever witnessed in the church, you had Martin Luther go and he nails the 95 Theses to the, to the door of that German church. You had Calvin preaching in France, exiled to Geneva under threat of life. And as they nailed the, the, the 95 Theses to the door, as they preached that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the whole time it was under threat of their life. And that that is how revival comes. Revival comes when the people of God commit themselves wholeheartedly to the word of God with a willingness to die as they do it. Because if you are willing to die for it, you will most assuredly be willing to live for it. And you will be able to live at a pace and at a tone that is unknown to the sane and pagan world. So brothers and sisters, are you willing to die for this book? Are you willing to live for this book? That's what will bring revival. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.